Hello, everyone. This is Food Talks executive producer Rob Perra. On today's episode, Danny talks with Dr. Marion Nessel about her new book, Let's Ask Marion, what you need to know about the politics of food, nutrition, and health. Listen with Danny and Marion as they discuss the current state of food politics and the future of the food system. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Food Talk Live. A reminder that this episode will also appear on our podcast, Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg. So please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Today, I'm, I'm just so really excited. Um, I get to chat with the amazing Marian Nessel. She has been a lifelong leader of the Food for Health movement and is an expert on nutrition, dietary choices, and food policy. She is a voice of reason when it comes to talking about food and nutrition and food and agricultural policies and what they should look like and who should benefit from them. She has spent her life really sharing her knowledge with so many students during her time as the Paulette Goddard Professor of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health at New York University. I did not have the honor of being one of her students, but I have learned so much from her many books, uh, her website, as well as hearing her speak at, at Food Tank Summits and other conferences. Um, and I, I just want to thank you, Mary, and you've been a great mentor to so many of us, and especially to me, I feel like I've learned so much of, of what I know about food and nutrition and food policy from you. So thank you for being with us today. Thanks for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. Awesome. So I want to start talking about your book first. Let's ask Marion, because I love everything about this book. I love the size. It's really aesthetically pleasing. It reminds me of um, a tiny thesaurus that I carried around in high school. I feel like it is a good reference book. And so I, I want to just ask you why you decided to, to write this with uh, Carrie Truman. You know, well, first of all, it's my version of Mao's little red book. <laughs> <laughs> this thing. And um, I was asked by University of California Press to, uh, I mean, they complained. I, they published several of my books and uh, they complained that they're so long. They're 500 pages. Mm -hmm. They have um, a thousand references. Uh, they, they really require a lot from readers. Couldn't I do a just little short summary um, that just somebody could pick up and read? And I said, no. Absolutely not. I can't do that. <laughs> I've been interested in doing that, in part because I had written a column for the San Francisco Chronicle for five years, uh, some years ago, and they were really hard for me to write. It was supposed sure. to be supposed to be a Q&A and nobody ever asked any questions and so I had to come up with the topics and it just seemed sloggingly difficult and I mm. just didn't want to do it. And then I thought, wait a minute, Q&A. I used to ask answer Carrie Truman's questions when Carrie, who's a friend of mine, was writing a blog called Eating Liberally. Every mm. now and she would ask me a question and her questions were clever and they were fun and they were interesting and they were um, they were things that I was really interested in in writing about. She would send me these things. They were 100 or 200 words. And I would sit down and just whip off answers. It was just a pleasure to do it. Yeah. Uh, and so. I, you know, she posted them on her website. I posted them on my website. 
and she posted them under the title, Let's Ask Marion. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, this book is her title, and I certainly couldn't have done it without her. And so she agreed to do this for this book, and we were off and running, and we agreed in advance kind of what the basic topic areas would be, that there would be six about six questions about healthy diets and six questions about community food politics, six sure. questions about international food politics. Um, and so it would range from the personal to the political with politics and all of it. Um, and that's what we did. And University of California Press did it in this really cute format. That's I mean, great. I... I think it's adorable. <laughs> it is. Like, I want to carry it everywhere. It's so great. It's really cute. You can stick it in your pocket. It doesn't take, you know, you don't have to devote hours and hours and hours to reading right. it. And the exciting thing for me about it, and the thing that surprises me, I guess, is people are reading it. Yeah, they really are. It's great. They are. And, and I'm kind of surprised by that, but it's okay. So I think the University of California Press was right that you you needed to have something where people could read it, you know, in a sitting or come back to it. And I, I, I think that's one of the, the best things about it. You can go back and forth. You don't have to read it from start to beginning. You can read certain topics. There There is a chapter about nutritional value and in, the environmental impacts of alternative meat products. And I would kind of want to get into that because, every, you know, we're hearing so much about impossible foods and beyond meat and their their sales have really skyrocketed it seems during COVID-19 and I wanted you know just hear from you what you think about these products and and you know are, are they good for us are they bad for us oh I think they're fine um I mean I've tasted them I but but you know my sort of general feeling about it is I don't get it I don't understand why you need artificial meat if you don't want to eat meat don't eat meat meat isn't an essential nutrient everybody would be healthier probably sure. every eating less meat, eating less meat would be much better for the environment. Um, but people tell me that they miss meat. Mm -hmm. That, uh, you know, my favorite comment on it was uh, a parent who told me that, oh, at long last, I can take my child to fast food places and there'll be something there for her to eat. <laughs> and, you know, and so this is just outside the way I think about food. I yeah. think you know, I like eating real food. I think people would be healthier eating real food. These are artificial, and so they're outside my radar. And, of course, they are what um, the new buzzword is, which is ultra-processed, um, a specific category of junk foods that you would be healthier if you avoided. And these meet the definition of ultra-processed. They're industrially produced. You can't make them in your home kitchen. They have ingredients that have to be produced. You can't buy those. You can't buy pea protein in a supermarket. You can buy pea but you can't buy pea protein. Um, so uh, they're complicated. And I, and right now they're rocketing in sales. And people tell me that they really like them. Okay, fine. I don't think they're bad for you. Whether they're great for the environment remains to be seen. Right. That's the question I want to ask. And how do we sort of figure that out? Well, people are looking at that. There's been one study paid for by the industry uh, that shows that uh, there's certain biochemical markers that are lower in people who uh, substitute 
meat alternatives for real meat. That may or may not be a benefit. We don't know that yet, but certainly plant-based diets are what everybody is recommending is what I recommend a largely, not necessarily exclusively plant-based diet, but certainly a largely plant-based diet. And uh, these fit into that. And the ultra processed, you have to figure out, you know, what your values are here and what really matters to you. But as I say, they're off my dietary radar sure. because if I don't eat meat, I won't eat meat. Right. I mean, I think that that's such a good point. You can have a plant forward diet without having to turn to these, you know, whether it's beyond meat or the impossible burger, you can eat more beans and legumes and, you know, other products that are really, really nutritious and, and honestly, less, ex less expensive. The, these products, uh, these new products are kind of costly. And if you have any cooking ability at all, um, you know, I happen to like vegetables and like vegetable-based meals. Um, and I think you can have delicious food without meat if you don't right. want to eat meat, if you don't want right. to eat meat. Um, so I, I don't know. As I say, they're, they're kind of off my radar. You said... Yeah, you said when I asked you this question that you kind of just don't get it. And I wonder if there are other sorts of, you know, issues like this that, you know, people ask you and you're like, no, I just don't get it. I don't get why, you know, you'd be interested in that because you have this instead. Are there other issues like that? Oh, supplements just leap to mind. Um, you know, I mean, half of American adults take supplements despite an astonishing research base that shows that they don't make healthy people healthier. And since healthy people are the people who are taking supplements, <laughs> <laughs> People who need them don't take them. Um, the uh, I, you know I don't understand those either. Why would you? Well, people feel better if they take supplements. That I believe, but it may or may not have anything to do with the supplement itself. And they're very poorly, they're very poorly regulated, which concerns me a lot. Absolutely. I'd like to know that some uh, functioning government agency, if we have any of those anymore. Um, <laughs> Would be uh, would be would be nice. I would be nice if somebody was keeping an eye on them. You know, and it's interesting because uh, the the sale of supplements has gone up so much during COVID nineteen because people are more interested in their health and staying healthy than ever before. And so, I mean, I think that's the next question I want to ask you about. There, you know, the the tragedy of COVID nineteen uh, cannot be disputed, but it has sparked an interest in people, you know, thinking about food more. Um, or, you know, worrying about their health more. Do you think that's a sort of a healthy sign that people are, you know, they're cooking? I, I don't know. I, I, yeah, I, 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 people are cooking more. People are gardening more. You know, at the beginning of the pandemic, you couldn't buy seeds. Now you can't buy canning jars. Right. You know, in September, everybody's putting up, I just put up uh, some Concord grape jam and I didn't have enough jars and there was no possibility of getting them. They're all sold out. So I think that's great. People rediscovered uh, right. growing, preparing, preserving food. It's really fun. You can make really wonderful, delicious things that way and have them around. You can right. can freeze um, you know we have enough tomatoes to last for another year without any without any, in the form of sauce and I think all of these are terrific and um, you know if, if I think there are two positive things 
that have come out of the pandemic. And people's personal relationship with food is one of those. Sure. And, and the other is recognition of how the food system works in a way that I think people didn't recognize before. Right. Who knew that meatpacking workers and grocery store clerks were essential? to the functioning of society. And these are among the most badly treated and poorly paid workers in our system. Who knew that? Right. Um, so I, the fact that people recognize that, that they realize the connection between our food production system and hunger and food insecurity seems really important to me. And also what's happening in schools. The idea that, oh, what a surprise. Schools are not just about educating kids. They're about feeding kids, too. So this realization, the, the, um, the recognition of how the politics of the food system works seems to me very, very useful. And I hope that good things will come out of it. Well, obviously, you've been writing about this issue of food politics for years. And when you wrote your, your book, Food Politics in 2002, People kind of didn't get it. They're like, why is food political? But now, I mean, we're talking about 18 years later that food is more political than ever. And I, I think this book, Let's Ask Marion, comes about at a, at a really uh, crucial point in time, right? We have this election coming up. People, you know, are not only going to vote with their forks like you've encouraged them to do for many years, but they're going to vote with their votes based on what they've seen happen over the last several months, hopefully. It's my, you know, and I wonder what you you think of this idea of a, a citizen eater, somebody who actually votes based on their beliefs around the food system. Well, I think that would be terrific. And, and I think there are people who do that. I mean, this year, the vote with your vote is is to be taken literally. You know, everybody has to vote this year. Your friends have to vote. Your family has to vote. And every individual should be working on trying to get people to vote. Uh, so the vote with your fork, vote with your vote thing that I use all the time, I think both are really important. And I, and I do think that um, voting with your fork is important. I know there's a lot of criticism of that kind of approach, that it's individual and it's about uh, yummy food and not politics. But I think if you make decisions about what you eat based on your value system, uh, that will influence your friends, your family, and other people, and it will it'll spread if enough people do it, uh, you know, without, without in any way uh, minimizing the importance of getting involved in politics. And I certainly push the students I teach and everybody I know to get involved in food politics because it's a way of explaining. I mean, you can explain how the political system works through food in a way that very hard to explain in a lot of other ways. Um, so that's why I think people are getting it. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's really useful. I mean, the I read the page proofs on this book in April. And fortunately, there was a blank page. So I could add something about COVID-19. Um, but I think the book, you know, in the light of COVID-19, what I written about in this book is even clearer because it's such a good example of the kinds of things you know I was talking about. 
I would agree, and I just want to read um, something from the the introduction. You're, you were talking about COVID-19, I guess, on that page where you had some extra room, and you say, these events call for advocacy for strong government, so, sorry, for strong democratic government and institutions, among them food system, the food systems that benefit all members of society, regardless of income, citizenship, race, ethnicity, gender, or age. And so I, I think it's really a call to action for all of us to become involved. It's, you know, it the political, the personal becomes very political when we talk about food, as you mentioned. You're voting with your fork, but realizing that all of these connections that have come about since COVID, that voting with your fork has a real impact on people. And I, I think that's the connection that people were missing before COVID, that it wasn't just about their personal health, what they were eating, but it had this impact on that grocery store worker, that meat processing plant worker, the 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 person who drives the truck that gets your food to the grocery store. People are really seen all of that. Yeah, I think in a way that it was very difficult to see before. And so that's why I think if there's one benefit that comes out of that, that's one of the benefits is the realization of those connections that were, you know, school food seemed very abstract to people who didn't have kids in school. Um, and now all of a sudden you realize that there's talk about universal school meals. Right. This is coming up over and over and over again. And some of us have been advocating for universal school meals for decades. And all of a sudden, it's a public discussion because it's obvious that kids are not being fed adequately if they're not being fed in school and right. have universal school meals until the end of December. Right. Thankfully. Let's, let's keep them going after that. It would right. solve a lot of problems. Yeah, that was a decision that was just made recently by USDA, correct? Yes. Yeah, and it was much needed. And, uh, you know, uh, regardless of who, you know, takes over the administration in, in January, I hope they do continue that because this pandemic will, will be going on for a while, it looks like. I'm afraid so. Absolutely. So, you know, uh, another chapter in your book is about food safety. Um, and and you 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 ask uh, in the title, why don't we demand a higher standard of food safety? And that that word demand, I, you know, it has a lot of power behind it. So why should we demand better food safety, Marion? Oh, because we don't have it. You know, we have constant recalls of food uh, because of salmonella or listeria or the toxic forms of E. coli. I mean, these, these recalls come one after another after another, um, and increasingly among vegetables. And that's because vegetables are grown in fields and those fields happen to be near concentrated animal feeding operations, CAFOs, where there are a lot of animals around and their waste is getting into the water supply or dripping onto the land or however it's being transmitted, uh, then the pathogens that are in that waste get on the vegetables and people right. get sick. And this happens over and over and over again and never stops. Even though we now have legislation um, that covers meat production and vegetable production. Meat production with the USDA, vegetable production with the FDA. You know, one of the annoying features of the way our government works is that there's a split as if vegetables aren't grown near animals. Sure. Um, 
And we have these laws, but they're not enforced very well. And they need to be enforced better. And it's not that food companies are sitting there thinking, how can we make people sick? Sure. It's just being sloppy about how they're producing the food and they're not testing enough. Um, and certainly if they were serious about producing food safely, they could do it because we know how to produce food safely. Uh, we learned that from NASA years ago. Right. When NASA was worried that astronauts in outer space would get food poisoning and that would be extremely unpleasant under the situation of zero gravity. You would not want to have anybody that kind of sick under zero gravity. So they figured out a way to do it. And sure. the um, and we know how to do it. And the, the fact that it's not being done has to do a lot, I think, with enforcement and with the culture of food production, that there's no culture of food safety operating plants, uh, all of that could be changed. And it would be changed if there was a big enough stick about it. Well, and you're, and you're right. They're not just being sloppy, though. They're they're actually, you know, killing people, making them sick, and, and sometimes leading to death. And this is this is beyond sloppy. This is, you know, a cr criminal. And I think, you know, that goes back to this issue of enforcement that you've brought up. You know, we need to enforce these regulations that are in place, especially before they go away, as uh, this current administration has tried to remove so many of them. <laughs> so... <laughs> You know, uh, advocates and academics like yourself have been calling for many years for a national food policy, something that's, you know, better and bigger and more inclusive than the farm bill. And, you know, I, I because of COVID-19 and everything that's sort of been uncovered, what was invisible is now visible. People are really understanding in, in bigger ways where their food comes from. Do you think now is the time to sort of reinvigorate that discussion around creating a national food policy? Well, I always think it's time to do that. Um, and certainly there are groups of people who are suggesting food policies of one kind or another. Um, and there have been suggestions for years now. Uh, one thing is, you know, the obvious, the, the, the Government Accountability Office has, for has been trying for more than 40 years to get the food safety functions of the Department of Agriculture and the FDA unified into one and there were steps that were being taken into that in that direction but those have that 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 pressure has stopped but you know i think if you were going to sit down and design a food policy from scratch um the one we have is there for historical reasons and if you were going to do this from scratch you would want to have a food policy that promotes the health of people and the environment that links agriculture and public health with the goal of producing healthy diets that are available, affordable and accessible to everyone in the population. Um, and, a, and that is environmentally sustainable and protects against uh, bad effects on climate change. Um, and it's quite possible to do that. We know what kind of a diet it is. Fortunately, the same diet does both. Um, human health and environmental health. So that makes it a lot easier. And that's a largely, but not necessarily exclusively plant-based diet um, with less meat and more vegetables um, sure. and less processed 
food, I think, also. Um, and that's possible to do if we had the political will to do it. And it was interesting to me that a um, commission of the Lancet, one of the a British medical journal, last year came out with a diet for planetary health um, and a proposal for how you go about dealing with undernutrition, overnutrition problems of obesity and climate change at one fell swoop. And you do that by eating less meat, eating more vegetables and linking food production to consumption in a way that's not done presently. So we could fix that. And they identified what the problems were. The problems were that you have weak governance, governance governments that are sold out to corporations have been captured right. by corporations. And we certainly see that in a lot of federal policy in the United States. You have weak civil society. So that there's the, the thousands of organizations that are working on food movement issues are not united. I mean, that's what you're trying to do with Food Tank that I think is so important, is trying to bring all these groups together so they collaborate on um, working towards the same issues and try to achieve and, and advocate for the same goals. Um, so, you know, the complaints that the food movement doesn't have any real power, I think is true to some extent. I think it's more powerful than it appears, but um, it's true to some extent that it's not organized into one enormous coalition that demands changes in the way that, you know, might actually get changes. Right. And we're all working toward. Right. We are not as powerful, uh, at least financially, as the big agriculture lobbies and, you know, the, all of those organizations that are working to promote meat or pork or chicken consumption. So I, I think it's, you know, we are sort of at this crucial time in history, though, where I think again, consumers, eaters are more interested in where their food comes from than ever before. And we have to sort of hop on this moment, take this moment and run with it so that we can build that unified sort of coalition that can vote on these issues in a, in a, in a really cohesive way where we can make change. I totally agree. But I mean, that's what you've been advocating for your your entire sort of career. People using the knowledge they have around food to make that the, the both those personal and political changes. And I I wonder over your career if you've been really surprised by something that you never thought would change, but then did. Well, you know, I have a very personal one uh, on that. I mean, I th I I can see over the last thirty years enormous changes in the food system that a lot of young people can't see because they haven't been around for 30 years. Um, you know, their food in supermarkets is much better than it used to be. Uh, you can get fruits and vegetables all year round in a way that you couldn't 30 years ago. There are more farmers markets. There's more organic food. There are more community supported agricultural operations. Um, there's much more interest in this kind of thing. And, you know, my personal example is food studies programs. When we started our food studies program at NYU in 1996, there was a program in gastronomy at Boston University. That was the only one. Uh, but food studies, I mean, I remember having dinner one night with the NYU provost 
um, at around the time that we were just starting the program. And he said, I don't understand what's food studies. Why would anybody want to study about food? Why is food important enough to study about? And, you know, I'm pretty good at answering that question. And I spent an hour talking to him and he never did get it. He was a mathematician. Um, and he just wasn't interested in anything social. He wasn't interested in society and politics and economics or in any of the other huge areas of study that food connects to so forcefully um, but if you go on the website of the society the americans the association for the study of food and society which represents food study scholars there are probably 60 food studies programs throughout the world now um so that, that's pretty exciting and you know to me that's an example of public interest in these areas public recognition that food connects to the most important problems that society has to deal with, you know, food insecurity, obesity and its consequences and climate change right off the top affect everybody on the planet. One or the other um, affects everybody. Certainly climate change affects everyone on the planet. Um, and these are hugely important issues and food is a wonderful entry point to get into them because you could talk to people about food and politics in a way that you cannot talk to people about other kinds of politics because Absolutely. politics is off-putting. It's um, people think it's dirty and they don't want to get involved in it. And somehow with food, it's easier. Yeah. Food is a great entry point for a lot of these things for sure. You know, you mentioned, um, the, the climate connection. I feel like it's only recently, maybe in the last decade though, that people have sort of understood regular eaters and also environmental organizations have understood the, the connections between food and climate and started talking about it in a bigger way. Is that something that surprised you that the environmental movement didn't take that on earlier? Yeah, it does. And I, it did surprise me. And it also surprised me that the food movement didn't take it on earlier. But I think that has to do with the big disconnect between food production and consumption. Um, and they're really, they have always been um, thought of separately. Sure. So on the one hand, you look at what people are eating. On the other hand, you look at agriculture. Agriculture seems very remote from what you get at the supermarket and making the connection between agriculture and what's at the supermarket has been something quite recent. That's where food systems come in. Um, you know, the big buzzwords that are really new in the last five to 10 years are food systems, mm -hmm. which describe the totality of what happens to a food from the time it's produced um, to the time it's consumed and wasted. And in order to, if you're going to talk about what people are eating, you have to talk about uh, food consumption in the context of food production um, and everything else that happens to it. And that's one of the things that COVID-19 has pointed out so forcefully, that people can see that in a way that they never were able to see it before. Um, and then the other is this ultra-processed concept, which is also relatively new and refers to a category of junk foods, uh, to put it bluntly, that um, 
there's now just tons of research that shows that eating ultra-processed foods um, is not good for your health or for the sure. planet. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. You, you've talked about, you know, some of the things that have come up because of COVID. And I think another big one is, is transparency and, and, and traceability in the food system. People really wanting to know every stage and, and, and trying to figure out, you know, exactly where their food comes from, what the animal's name was, where it lived, those kinds of things. Do you, do you think that that, you know, that kind of information is going to get smarter over time or or will we forget about it once COVID is over? Oh, no, I think there's a growing interest in that. And for all the right reasons. Um, I mean, this is something that, you know, that is where the personal gets political because, um, you know, I, I mean, people don't really understand how industrial food production works. They're not supposed to understand it. You're not supposed, you're supposed to go to a supermarket and buy chicken parts and never think that those wings or those thighs or those legs actually came from a bird. Um, And you certainly don't want to think about how that bird was raised. And I think that as more and more comes out about how these systems work, you know, how chicken production works. Um, you know, there have been movies about it over the past 10 years, but COVID-19 has really pointed out um, how the system works and how bad it is, not only for the animals and birds themselves, um, but also for the people who are working in those situations who sure. are the immigrants, often people of color, often not getting sick leave, often, you know, not being paid very well. These are revelations that have come out of this pandemic that, you know, I think it's really terrific that people are recognizing this now and maybe we'll end up with a food system that pays its workers adequately. Absolutely. I know. Wouldn't that be great? (laughs) No, I... I, I feel like the 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 pandemic has really put a human face on on these you know we we didn't think of them as essential we didn't think of them maybe even as human before this we just thought of you know factories sort of putting out this stuff and now that we know that people are behind all this I, I think real change will come about. I'm interested, you know, I have this sort of fascination with technology and its misuses and also some of the benefits that it could provide to the food and agriculture system. And I'm wondering, you know, you mentioned it uh, in the book, uh, your sort of thoughts on technology. Could you share those? <laughs> well, you know, I'm of the generation that doesn't believe in technology very much. <laughs> We're doing this. As I like like to put it, I'm technologically challenged. (laughs) And I'm teaching an online course this fall. Boy, this was a steep learning curve, let me tell you. (laughs) It's 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 been an interesting experience. Um, I I mix feelings about it. um, I think there are ways in which technology can do wonderful things for the food system, but that's not generally what technology has done. Um, the use of technology in food production has mainly been to increase the profits of the producers of those foods. That's been its purpose. It's right. been successful in doing that. Um, and, you know, I guess 
biotechnology, food biotechnology is the best example of that, uh, where you know, the promise of food biotechnology right from the beginning was that it would address problems in food production that have been very difficult to deal with. And it would help the developing world grow food under conditions of poor soil, poor water, uh, poor climate, and increase productivity under those conditions. But that's not what happened. Right. What happened was they focused on um, temperate zone agriculture and corn, basically corn and soybeans, which is feed for animals or fuel for cars um, and not food for people because it was more profitable to do it that way. So, you know, in situations where I've seen technology used, aimed at food for people, and I, you know, I would say I was a skeptic about um, urban growing of vegetable greens, for example, until I actually went to a few plants and lo and looked at how they were doing it when they get their energy problem solved so that they're not spending fortunes on energy in order to grow these things, then, um, you know, then I think it may be worthwhile doing that because there will be greens in the middle of Newark, New Jersey that can, that are being sold at the same price as other greens. I don't know whether they're making a profit or not. I don't have any idea. Uh, but the, um, you know, I, I mean, it's, a, it's something that's possible. And, you know, maybe it'll be useful in the future. Uh, but I think we could do our non-technological uh, food system work much better than we're doing it. And we certainly could grow food more sustainably and under better conditions and under less polluting conditions. And we should be growing food that way. Yeah. It's not only That's that great. we should be. Absolutely. Yeah. Technology is not a silver bullet. And just to address maybe that question about, you know, are those indoor um, uh, farms that are growing greens like the Bowery or Gotham Greens, you know, they lost a lot of their, um, you know, outlets for, for sales because of restaurant closures, but then that was picked up by grocery stores. So I think they're, they're remaining even, even they're not, you know, making a ton of money, but they were able to, to sell to grocery stores when supply chains from California or the, you know, Mexico were sort of stopped because of COVID. So I think that's any sort of another silver bullet maybe, or, or silver, sorry, silver lining to COVID is some of those. There's one point I want to make. I'm not opposed to profit. Oh, of course. I'm really not. I am opposed to greed. Absolutely. Absolutely. Here, here. I like, you know, I, I want the food system aimed at feeding people and protecting the planet. And I think we could do that. Uh, all we need is political will and civil society pushing our legislators to do the right thing. Absolutely. And that, again, is more important than this this year than probably ever before. I, I want to go back. You were talking about the online course that you're teaching for undergraduates around the food system and COVID-19. And I, you know, if you can share some of your insights, I know this class is currently happening and uh, but it would be great. Like what, you know, what kinds of questions are you getting from the students? 
Well, it's I, can't, I don't even know how to begin to talk about how <laughs> what experience this is. Uh, the lectures were pre-recorded in short segments of five to fifteen minutes each. I was told that anything longer than ten minutes, nobody would watch, um, which is kind of interesting. You know, I'm used to giving fifteen-minute lectures, and the um, um, and I'm covering in the class. I'm covering what has happened with COVID in the food system, uh, the three things we talked about, what's happening with the meat packers, the idea that food was being destroyed while people are online for food, what's happening in schools and so forth, um, with a focus on food insecurity, which is an enormous problem right now. I don't know why anybody would be surprised that it's an enormous problem. 40 million people are out of work. On unemployment insurance, where are they supposed to have the money to buy food? Um, you know, so food insecurity, a huge problem right now. Uh, obesity and its consequent raising of risks for type 2 diabetes, heart disease, and so forth. I'm talking a lot about ultra-processed foods, food systems, um, and half the class is on the problems. Uh, the undernutrition, overnutrition in the environment, the other half the classes on what to do about it. Um, you know, how do you personally advocate for food system change? How do we get societies to advocate for food system change? How do we get uh, the world to advocate mm -hmm. for food system change? And then the last chapter in the book is about uh, how you do advocacy. That's great. Yeah. Because I want, I want uh, students to become food advocates. That's fantastic. That's my goal. That's great. Um, before I ask the final question that's related to that, I want to make sure that people know where to get your book. They can go to ucpress.edu. Again, that's ucpress.edu. You don't have to buy it from some of those other companies who will remain nameless. You can go directly to the publisher. Um, you can... The nameless company is selling it at the same price. <laughs> well, good. Um, so you should buy it from the publisher. <laughs> um, you can follow uh, her food politics blog at foodpolitics.com. And um, you can read about her almost everywhere, including Food Tank and, and uh, thecounter.org and many other outlets. Um, so this idea of teaching you know, young folks to become food advocates uh, what's your advice for the, you know, the 18 to 22 year olds who are, you know, doing probably classes online, either in dorms by themselves or at home? What, how can they take action now to become the food advocates of the future? Well, they can pick up the phone and call their local representatives. They can write emails to their local representatives. They can write lecture. They can write letters to their open their local representatives. And um, if in their own district, um, legislators say that hearing from constituents mm -hmm. is still the most powerful message that gets through to them. Mm -hmm. And that they want to hear from constituents. And if they hear, you know, one probably doesn't do very much, but how about organizing a few people in your class to right. a letter with several signatures on it or separate letters? Uh, let your local legislators know what you think about these kinds of issues and what you want them to do. 
um, you know, one of the things that you try to teach advocates to do is to have a specific goal. And if you're going to talk to legislators, there has to be a legislative goal. Right. What is it that you want them to do? I have to be really clear about that, but it doesn't take very much to figure out how to do that. And there are terrific books to read about how to become an effective advocate. They work really well. Um, you can, there, there, and there are loads of organizations to join that are doing work that might be exactly the kind of work that um, you know, I, mean, I assume that everybody who's watching this belongs to Food Tank, but if you don't belong, join it. <laughs> Thanks, Marianne. That would be a good first step. Uh, one thing, because uh, one of the things you do, Danny, is you publish lists of organizations, um, and those lists are immensely useful. Uh, the, the I once had a student complain that she didn't know of any food organizations working on food issues. And so I said, well, you're an undergraduate. Uh, how about doing a research project? And she came back a week later and said, this is impossible. There's too many of them. You know, uh, they're just too many. I, I don't know. What, this was just in New York. Sure. It, I sure. can't imagine if you were trying to do it nationally. And so you find an organization that's working on an issue that you care about, join that organization, support it, send the money if you have any money to send, um, or at least join their letter writing or email campaigns. Um, I'm not sure. A lot of things come through that ask for clicking. I'm, I'm not convinced that clicking is very useful. Sure. You know, although I suppose you could count up the number of clicks and that might have some effect. Um, but the way the political system works is it works with money and it works with complaints. So at least complain. Be noisy. At the very least, make noise. Right. <laughs> or right, make right. beautiful trouble. There's an organization that teaches how to do unusual kinds of advocacy called Beautiful Trouble. That's a good way of doing too. <laughs> I love that. That's a wonderful way to end this. Get loud, make beautiful trouble. Marion, you are my inspiration. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. A reminder that this episode will also be on our podcast, Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg. Marion, stay safe and well. The world needs you now more than ever. Thank you. Thank you. This is Rob Perra, Food Talk's executive producer. Let Danny and I know what you think of the new podcast format. Send us an email at danielle at foodtank.com. Please feel free to suggest future guests and anything you think we can improve. Thanks so much for listening. Tune in next time.